Welcome to the podcast. I'm Shira Schoenberg. Here with me today is State Auditor Suzanne Bump, who has been the auditor since 2011 and is leaving office in January after choosing not to run for re-election. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. So Beacon Hill has often had a reputation as a bit of an old boys club, yet in your decade in office, you've seen a surge of women being elected to top offices, and in January, women will hold five of the six constitutional offices. How have you seen the attitude towards women in leadership change in the time you've been on Beacon Hill and in the auditor's office? I think that a lot of it has to do with, uh, with trust. Uh, it took a long time for a skeptical world to uh, accept women as leaders, but obviously uh, in the past few years, we have made uh, great strides in electing women, in appointing women to, uh, to boards and, and the like. You know, we're still not at parity, but I, I really do think that we have uh, proven ourselves to be uh, capable advocates as well as administrators. And why did you choose not to run for a fourth term? How, well, uh, you know, I'm aging, uh, <laughs> which should come as no surprise to anyone. Um, but I love what I'm doing, but is it what I want to be doing for another four years? Um, it was a, was a critical question that I had to uh, ask myself. Could I continue to bring the same energy, the same spirit of uh, uh, innovation, uh, the same nine to five dedication, you know, plus the weekends and the campaigning? And I, I just said, no, it's time to let someone else uh, bring a new vision to the auditor's office. So what's next for you? Uh, my husband, who passed away six years ago, actually left me a business. I have not been at all involved with it uh, during um, my time as state auditor. It does mental health and substance abuse work, and uh, his uh, second-in-command has been CEO. I'll be spending some time with that, as well as engaging with some nonprofit boards that I have, uh, have gone on uh, fairly recently. Sounds like a big difference from state government, but certainly will keep you busy, I'm sure. Um, yeah. You actually entered this job with a lot of experience in state government. You were a labor secretary, you were state representative. Did you find anything through this work that surprised you about how state government works or how state government doesn't work? Um, well, as you suggest, I was pretty well grounded in, um, in policy making and in policy implementation. And so then moving into an accountability role really seemed like a kind of a logical thing. I had a good foundation for it. Um, I think that one thing that continues, I don't know, to, well, I guess it does continue to surprise me um, that we, that state government is so bad at making use of the information that it collects in order to assess its performance on an ongoing basis. That there's always gonna be a role for the state auditor, um, but, uh, but agencies themselves have a greater capacity to uh, kind of police themselves, to assess their performance. Um, and I just don't see the the uptake in those principles uh, across across state government. Uh, it was something that uh, that um, Governor Patrick had initiated, and I see very little progress um, or, or insufficient progress uh, across the board. So, give me a couple of examples of what that could look like. What type of information do agencies have that they're not making the most effective use of? 
Um, well, this is a small audit, but um, we are going to be releasing an audit of, uh, of an agency, and it is so small, I'm not going to even name it. Um, but one of the things they are supposed to do is assess um, the performance, in fact, of some of their vendors, folks with whom they have contractual relationships that, um, that foster career development for people with, with um, disabilities. Um, and they were failing to um, periodically assess the performance of those contractors. Um, and then that is something that I see regularly across government. And, and I don't think that it is due to a, just a lax attitude, but rather that it's the result of primarily of a failure of state government to invest in the people that are necessary to do this kind of oversight, to understand what data their systems collect and use it to really assess performance and to then stay on top of state contractors. So your idea is that state government needs to hire more people as internal auditors, essentially. Yeah, and, and, you, know, and you don't even necessarily have to have that, um, that job description, but yes, folks who are regularly assessing, collecting information and, um, and assessing uh, performance. Um, it is, I think, necessary to build public trust. Um, I, one of the things that has been very important in my office is, is seeing the role that we have in building public trust and showing the public that government is capable of self-examination and self-correction. Why should people trust any entity that is not ensuring that on a continuous basis that they are actually serving the public that they profess to serve? So State Senator Diana DiZaglio has been elected to replace you. You endorsed her primary opponent, Chris Dempsey, and during the election, you actually clashed with Senator DiZaglio over whether the auditor has authority to audit the legislature. Do you think your successor understands the job she's moving into? Oh, I think that she is being very well schooled um, in the uh, the abilities this, uh, of the office, uh, you know, hurdles that she might have to overcome in order to, um, to achieve some of her objectives. Um, on that particular point, frankly, I entered the auditor's office thinking that I could audit the legislature and quickly <laughs> and quickly learned otherwise. So so I you know I understand her her uh, starting her starting point, but I, I do think that uh, you know that she'll she's in a process right now of understanding really the nature of the job. And have you been working with her on the transition? Oh yeah, we got a book of, of uh, processes and procedures and descriptions of every single thing that we do. Interviews are taking place. Uh, technology has been provided uh, to, the, uh, to her and the folks that she's designated for her uh, transition work. So uh, you know, the process is chugging along. And you've you've lived in several communities in different parts of the state, Easton, Whitman, Braintree, Great Barrington, and it seems like your experiences have really come into your work as auditor because you've really been very out front in calling attention to the differences in how state policy affects particularly Eastern versus Western Massachusetts. Has there been progress made in treating Western Massachusetts more fairly, or do you still see that as an area where the state is lagging? Um, I do see progress being made. Um, one of the earliest things that we looked at was uh, uh, were our regional 
schools. Um, and although we have regional schools in the eastern part of the state, they really do predominate in more rural um, uh, parts of the state. And that certainly includes um, Western Massachusetts. And so, uh, and, and so transportation costs, uh, school bus transportation costs are, are, are disproportionately large compared to the rest of school budgets out there, as opposed to uh, the greater metropolitan area. Um, and so you know, we, we've done work, not audit work. It was our reports through our uh, division of local mandates that have resulted in the um, in increase in funding for regional schools. Much more recently, we looked at uh, the uh, state's program of reimbursing or, or compensating uh, communities for the state-owned land in their uh, jurisdictions. Uh, there was a formula that has, has disadvantaged uh, the rural communities whose property values aren't growing or are stagnating relative to those in the metropolitan Boston area. Um, that line item for compensating communities for state-owned land um, has also increased. I'm really hopeful that the report that we did, uh, I, I guess it was a year ago now, uh, that particularly highlighted uh, differences in uh, transportation funding that's available, particularly so-called Chapter 90 roadway um, funding, um, that that formula, which has existed for uh, decades, uh, unchanged, uh, um, is being, uh, will be the subject of, uh, of, uh, of review and, uh, and change in the coming legislative session. So yeah, I think a lot of progress has been made and that rural rescue plan, as we called it, that we issued last year, really, I think has emboldened a lot of local officials in Western Mass to start claiming their due from, uh, from state government. And was it your time in Great Barrington that led you to be so committed to this work? It really was because for 20 years, my husband and I owned a, a home there. I mean, we would commute from our jobs in Boston to the Berkshires and I would pick up the paper, it's there. Um, and I would read about the, uh, the difficulties and the, and the unique challenges that those, that those communities that don't have the same kind of commercial or industrial tax base, and in fact, we're losing commercial and industrial uh, tax base as uh, paper mills and textile mills and printing shops were, uh, were closing down. And that really did, it, it really showed me that there indeed is an east-west divide. I mean, it's hard to get it's hard to get in Boston any news about what's going on in Western Mass and vice versa. They're not even in the same media markets. Um, so it's easy for folks in Boston to not think about Western Mass and how different it is. Um, and if folks in general aren't thinking about it, then, you know, then legislators aren't necessarily thinking about it. So one of the biggest policy issues of the last years or a few months was the 62F tax cap law, uh, which returned nearly $3 billion to taxpayers. You had a role in this and that you were responsible for certifying that the tax cap was triggered and how much excess revenues the state took in, so how much needed to be returned to taxpayers. Um, close to half of this $3 billion that you certified and estimated $1.4 billion is part of this kind of technical excise tax workaround that's designed to help wealthier taxpayers get around a federal limit on tax deductions. 
most of that money is going to be claimed by taxpayers through deductions and credits in future years. Did you look at that issue when you were certifying the amount of the tax cap? And doesn't that, as some liberal organizations like the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center has pointed out, doesn't that both put the state as a disadvantage and also give wealthier taxpayers too much of a break if they're getting the money back this year, then effectively getting it back again in future years? I think that those, um, those groups raised a legitimate policy point. However, the law is very clear about what the auditor does and the auditor looks at the money that's been taken in um, and, use, and, uh, and compares that to the formula of what the allowable revenue collection limit is and decides, decides what is excess. Um, there's, there's no room in the law for the auditor to make those kinds of um, of assessments um, or to uh, project the future consequences of, uh, of uh, the decision that the auditor makes in this case that there was excess um, revenue. Uh, that is, um, you know, so if, law, if lawmakers want to uh, do things differently in the future, they'll have to change the law. So you're saying in order to change that policy now, it would have had to be an action by the legislature, right. not the right. auditor. No, there's, there's no wiggle room. Um, revenue is, is revenue, uh, whether it's here to stay, whether it's permanent revenue, or whether it's going to have to be uh, rebated in some, some form in the future. It was taken in, and I had to count what was taken in. So let's go back to 2019 for a minute. This was before the whole national focus on police reform. You pointed out in a report then that the training being offered to Massachusetts police departments wasn't standardized, wasn't tracked, and in many ways was wholly inadequate. In 2020, the legislature passed a major police reform bill and they created the Post Commission, which is the Police Officer Standards and Training Commission that oversees police training and has power to certify, decertify police officers. Has the situation improved with that new Post Commission? Are the problems that you identified in 2019 still there? I cannot overstate to the public the transformation, the extent of the transformation that um, that police training has undergone in just the two years since the legislature enacted the post system. Indeed, uh, it was three years ago, right about now, um, that we did a, a, a report again from the Division of Local Mandates that said that the, the many police officers were not getting the training that they needed, um, or uh, and in some cases were not getting any training as required um, by law. And the state was woefully underfunding um, this function. Uh, there were too few instructors. There were not enough uh, facilities that were adequate to the task. And so the legislature, when it responded to, um, to concerns really that came up nationwide around um, the use of force and police training, um, the, uh, the legislature was able to jump on and advocates were able to jump on this idea of putting the post system in, in place. Um, there has had recently been some additional funding, uh, a funding mechanism that they had created a surcharge on uh, rental car fees that now goes into a fund to support this. And between 
those resources. And all of this is made possible by the visionary leadership of retired Woburn police chief, Bob Ferullo. There's been a total transformation in the facilities that are available, in the types of training. They now have state police training alongside municipal police and campus police and hospital police. All of these entities would, in the normal course of business, be interacting, um, but their training was had been inconsistent. They, they, they didn't have working relationships. Um, it is astonishing. Um, is to see the progress that has been made. Over 300 trained instructors now are, are, are both training recruits and doing the in-service training to keep police officers uh, you know, well-equipped with the skills um, that, they, that they need to deal with the wide range of problems that confront them on a daily basis. It makes them safer. It makes all of us safer. It's truly astonishing to see this report is not solely responsible for this transformation, but it gave credibility to an idea um, that had been um, advocated by the Black and Latino Caucus and by other members of the legislature, but it hadn't gone anywhere for years. And this was an independent analysis um, of, of, what, of what needed to be done. And they took the ball and ran with it. And another area where you've been active is you've been one of several outside reviewers over the years to call attention to problems with the Department of Children and Families. And it really seems like every time changes are made there, there's another high profile tragedy. Is this an agency that's fixable? What more needs to be done? The agency is full of really good people um, who try their very best to serve uh, uh, parents and, and children. Um, it is a really tough role. It's hard to stay in those positions. It's hard to staff um, adequately those, those um, positions. There's, I, you know, I just fear that, um, that there's always going to be room for improvement because human nature frankly doesn't seem to be getting any better. <laughs> we, have, we have new, because we have new social problems that they have to uh, confront. The problems uh, of addiction um, have become more widespread. Huge differences in social standing and in economic standing between the, you know, the, the, the poor and the, uh, and, and the wealthy all play into this. Uh, there are just so many forces um, that continue to assault family stability, challenge family stability, it makes it a constant challenge at, at DCF. There have been improvements that have been made there, but I think the DCF is just one of those agencies that's always gonna be a work in progress. And another area that you've been involved with historically is just debates over the Pacheco Law, which is the law that basically sets rules for how and what can be privatized within state government. There's been critiques of the law that it just basically makes it impossible to privatize anything. Um, were you surprised that Governor Baker didn't try to use that law more often? Do you think the law works as it's written? I think that the law is very effective because it forces um, administrations to make the business case when they want to privatize a service that is currently provided by state employees. And I got to tell you, I mean, so the legislature gave Governor Baker um, 
a, uh, you know, a, a free pass. They exempted uh, him from being um, uh, required to follow the Pacheco law when it came to the MBTA. And there are very mixed results on, on what um, he was able to achieve through privatization. If you look at, I think it was about a year ago, the inspector general um, did a report on the privatization of the um, process of, uh, of parts, of replacing parts and, and transporting you know, parts from one store, storage space to a bus, a bus depot where a garage where things were supposed to be kept. And it really has been a failure. Um, it has cost more money. It hasn't saved money. It has not increased efficiencies. Um, there are reasons why you need to go through the discipline of the, of the Pacheco law. And that is not just to save jobs, as its critics suggest, that this is just about protecting union jobs. It's also protecting value for the, for the taxpayer so that you can, you can be more confident that the business case has been made that this will result not just in cost savings, but improvement to the services that are going to be provided um, from an outside contractor versus, versus state employees. Um, so I am a, I'm a firm adherent uh, uh, advocate for the Pacheco law. Um, we, we have largely, under, during my years and even under, under my predecessor, approved the privatization proposals that have advanced because the business case has been has been made. And when it hasn't, in those few occasions when it hasn't, um, those, those processes have not advanced. So final question, as you leave office, what's one piece of advice that you would leave for your successor? The most important thing that I think that I have done uh, in this office uh, is, is not uh, focused on the uh, on the outcomes, though I'm happy to boast about things that we like we've been talking about. Those those the changes that have been um, made in service delivery, it's in professionalizing the office, giving it technical technological tools, um, which have helped increase the credibility of the office, its perception as being independent, objective. And uh, you know, and, and not at all political. Uh, in 12 years, I've never been accused of conducting an, an, an audit for political gain. Um, and I think that, that that is critically important for the, for the credibility of the office with policymakers and with um, the public to use these tools that have been put in place uh, to make government work better um, and, and not to you know, run down the rest of state government and, and investing in the staff. We have an amazing staff. Um, uh, it, it's, about, it's about building the institution um, as, as much as it is getting an impact across, uh, across the rest of government. And you can read more on commonwealthmagazine.org. State Auditor Suzanne Bump, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, it's been a delight. Thank you so much.